Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Hey, here's the deal. My name's Jason, and I have the privilege of being on staff here at the church. If you are brand new to church, like maybe this is your first time ever in church, and maybe you're a little bit nervous as to what you came into this morning, and you're trying to figure out, is this church or a movie right now? It's kind of a bit of both, and we're going to talk about what's fast becoming one of my favorite films um, that I've ever seen. Not because I'm a car enthusiast. I'm actually not. I drive like a beat-up Ford Ranger, so I'm not some huge fan of of cars. But it's a fantastic film that we're going to be talking about today. We are in part two of a uh, series called At the Movies, and uh, it's also a brand new year. So I want to wish everyone a happy new year. And I'm not sure when you're supposed to quit doing that. Okay, because it is January 12th, um, so anybody know the answer to that, by the way, just real quickly? Is there a rule when you stop saying Happy New Year? There is a rule. January the 11th. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> How many of you do New Year's resolutions? Raise your hand if you do New Year's resolutions. Raise your hand real quick. Okay, a few of you in the room. Uh, raise your hand if your resolution is to not do New Year's resolutions. Raise your hand if you resolve to do that or that was your resolution several years ago. Uh, Resolutions are an interesting thing. My resolution this year is to find out when to stop saying Happy New Year to people. Thank you for helping me solve my New Year's resolution this year. When I think about resolutions, I think about the fact that statistically speaking, more than 70% of people that make New Year's resolutions, they actually fail to keep them through the month of January which is why I think so many people have just given up on the whole idea of resolutions altogether. And part of the reason why is because I think we struggle with this other word that is a little bit like resolutions. It's the word resolve. Because in order to carry out your New Year's resolution, you need to have a lot of resolve. Like you need to resolve in order to be able to carry out that resolution. And I got so fascinated by this word these past couple of weeks that I actually did some research. I know that that's super stupid, very geeky, but I wanted to figure out what is the true definition of the word resolve because I'm convinced it's completely tied to our success in resolutions. The word resolve has many meanings, but a couple of the meanings are this, to settle or find a solution to a problem or something. Like for me, I have a problem with my weight. So if I had the resolve, I would settle and find the solution to my problem with being a little bit overweight. Now, I actually have found the solution to this. It's stop eating hot chips. (laughs) Super simple. But I don't have a decision to firmly take a course of action or decide once and for all to firmly, firmly take a course of action to stop eating hot chips. I just don't have the willpower to do it. So I don't have the resolve to actually accomplish my New Year's resolution. A couple of weeks ago, after much kind of persuasion from my two boys, I finally went and saw a movie that they had actually seen twice. One of them's actually seen it three times, in which the people in this movie had unbelievable resolve. It was unbelievable, the resolve that they had and the purpose that they had. The movie is called Ford versus Ferrari. And if you are not a car movie buff, if you are sick of Fast and Furious, 
And if you think that Fast and Furious 13 was a waste of all the other 12 before it, you need to go see Ford versus Ferrari because it has really not much to do with cars. It's a great film that talks about cars and it's a great story, but the story of the movie is far greater than the cars that are in the movie. And I know some uh, automobile enthusiasts in the room, you're going to be like, are you kidding me? You're saying that the cars in the movie weren't as good as the storyline? Actually, that's what I'm saying. The storyline was incredible. Matt Damon plays a famous American car driver, Carroll Shelby, but also a guy that created vehicles. He was a car manufacturer as well. In fact, in 1959, he became the first ever American to win the famous French Le Mans car race. First time ever in the history of Le Mans. In 1959, he won it driving a British vehicle, an Aston Martin. Then in 1960, Enzo Ferrari won Le Mans And in 61, 62, 63, 64, and 65, Ferrari won the Le Mans six years in a row, which drove Henry Ford II, not the original Henry Ford, who was the originator of the Ford motor car, but his son, Henry Ford, was furious that nobody could beat Ferrari. He had an unbelievable resolve. He had an unbelievable focus to finally beat Ferrari with a Ford motor car. He went and found this guy, Carroll Shelby, who's the only American that had ever won the race before in 1959, and said, I want to beat Ferrari in that race. Carroll Shelby knew, because he had won the race, that you have to be an idiot as a driver in order to win this race. You literally have to be a crazy man. You have to put your life on the line in order to win this race. So he went to the only guy that he knew could accomplish this, a guy named Ken Miles, played by Christian Bale in the movie, who was just a crazy, crazy driver, even more difficult to work with, but he had resolve And so Carol knew that Ken was the guy, if they were going to meet the resolve that Henry Ford II had to beat Ferrari, this was the only way to do it. In 1966, Ken Miles gets into the car, and I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story. I don't know who wins the race. Actually, I do know who wins the race. you got to go watch the movie. There was a speech, though, by Carol Shelby when he made public to the world Henry Ford's resolve to beat Ferrari finally with a Ford racing car. There was a speech that Carol Shelby gave that while I was watching the movie, immediately it dawned on me, this guy had purpose and this guy had resolve and that's the reason they were able to accomplish what they did. And then immediately I thought to myself, of this old ancient guy in the Old Testament, who did the most incredible thing. He accomplished something that honestly should never have been accomplished. He was up against so many odds. There were so many things that were against him. There is no way that in the short period of time that he was able to accomplish it, he should have been able to do it. In fact, what he did in just 52 days probably should have taken five to 10 years to accomplish. And I thought to myself, Carol Shelby had resolve. Henry Ford II had resolve, but this guy had some resolve that all of us could benefit from and could learn from in how he was able to accomplish what he accomplished. 
Now, before I tell you who we're talking about today, I need to give you a little bit of background, a little bit of context, a little bit of brief Israel history in order for you to understand the context of what we're doing. So hang with me. We're going to bounce between a timeline of Jewish history and a map of the Jewish world at the time so that you can get some context into what we're talking about. In 1313 BC, the Jews exited from Egypt. Anybody seen the movie The Prince of Egypt? Anybody seen that movie? Okay, so you all understand that story. Moses gets up, says to Pharaoh, let my people go. That's the exodus from Egypt. So to give you some context on the map, we'll go to the map. Egypt's down here. All of the Jews, they go up to Jerusalem and they begin to live in this part of the world. Now back to the timeline. 957 BC, the first temple is built in Jerusalem. Back to the map. Jerusalem is down here on the map and that's where they built the first temple, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. Back to the timeline. In 924 BC, the kingdom was divided. They had three kings. First king was Saul. Then the second king of Israel was a guy named David. He had a son named Solomon. Solomon dies and they elect or they bring about another king, at which time the 12 tribes of Israel, so there's 10 and my ears will make two, okay? So the 12 tribes of Israel are divided as to whether or not they want this guy to be the king. In fact, the 10 tribes in the northern part of the country decide they don't want, they want this guy to be king, but the two tribes in the southern part of the country, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they don't want the king. There's a civil, civil war and the kingdom is divided. 10 tribes in the north, they take the name Israel as their nation or country's name. The two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, Benjamin was a smaller tribe, they take on the name Judah. That all happened, and then if we go to the map, you'll see where the division took place. Right here is Judah, and Israel is to the north. Now back to the timeline. In 720 BC, remember the 10 tribes in the north are now called Israel. They are overtaken by the Assyrians, and they are sent into exile into Assyria. Back to the map. You'll see this dark purple line shows the 10 tribes of Israel being taken up and then dispersed all over Assyria. Now, back to the timeline. At the same time, or close to there, a little bit after, in 586 BC, the temple in Jerusalem, remember the two tribes in the south, known as Judah, but it's Judah and Benjamin in Jerusalem, the temple is destroyed that was built, and Judah is now exiled to Babylon. So all of the Jews, 10 tribes of the north, two tribes in the south, all gone. Ten tribes in the north in Assyria, two tribes in the south have been exiled to Babylon. If we go back to the map, you'll notice here Judah in the green line is taken over to Babylonia and they're dispersed all over here. Bad news for the country of Israel or for the Jewish people. They're out of their land that God had promised them. They've been conquered by these other nations and it's kind of bad news for them. They're spread out and dispersed all over the place. But good news is coming. Good news is coming. A superpower in the world at that time, Persia, conquers Babylon. Go back to the timeline or to the next timeline in 538 BC, Persia conquers Babylon and the Jews return to Judah. The Persians were nice people. They were kind people. And so they said to the Jews, what are you doing living here in Babylonia? Why are you living in Assyria? Go back to your home country. 
And so that's exactly what they started to do in different waves. If we go to the map again, you'll notice this orange line. They start making their way back to the land that is their country. Now, if we go back to the timeline, you'll notice that the second temple is built in Jerusalem in 515 BC. In a sense, it's rebuilt because the first temple was there. It was rebuilt on the same place, but now we have the second temple. Problem. The city of Jerusalem had been decimated by these Babylonians that had come in, destroyed the wall, destroyed the city, destroyed their livelihoods, destroyed their culture. Although they have a temple at this stage, it's been rebuilt in, in Jerusalem, they have no protection. So all the nations around at that time continued to oppose them, continued to try and conquer them, continued to plunder them. They were completely exposed during this time until our hero, Nehemiah, in 444 BC, rebuilds the wall around Jerusalem in 52 days. Think about this for a second. The wall around Jerusalem. We don't have bulldozers. We have no technology. This is just people working with their hands, rebuilding a wall in 52 days. It took the guys more than 90 days to build the car that would win just a little race. Some of you think, well, Jason, it's not a little race. Compare it to the wall around Jerusalem. Come on. 52 days with no technology? Nehemiah must have had unbelievable resolve. He must have had unbelievable purpose. The good news is this. Although the story happened 3,000, nearly 3,000 years ago now, the story was recorded for us so that we can actually get an insight into what was the secret, what was the thing that Nehemiah had that gave him the resolve and gave him the purpose to do the impossible of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem in just 52 days. Here's the good news. We have access to that story. We have the historical account. And we actually have his journal, Nehemiah's journal, to give us the secret into what was the thing that gave him the resolve and the purpose. And good news for us in 2020 is the same thing is available to you and I. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, even if you're not into this church thing, even if you're not sure about this whole Bible thing and you're not quite sure about it, Nehemiah was just a figure in ancient history. And what you can learn from him today could literally, I mean this, it could change the trajectory of your life. In fact, the question we're going to look at today is the thing that changed the trajectory of my life and why I'm standing here talking to you today. It's a powerful question. Nehemiah starts his whole book, and we're going to read through the entire first chapter. It's a bit unusual. We don't typically do that here at Creekside, read a whole chapter, but we're going to read through the whole first chapter of his story. And in this first chapter, I think we're going to find the secret to his resolve and to his purpose. Listen to the words of Nehemiah. He said this, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. I love that, that name, Hakaliah. It reminds me of like Hakalugi. I don't know if you're familiar with that concept, but Hakaliah. It's a great name. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, don't just gloss over what Nehemiah wrote down. So important. Kislev, an actual month in an actual calendar in the ancient world of Persia. 
Not once upon a time there was a guy named Nehemiah or in a galaxy far, far away. This is an actual guy who lived in an actual time in history in a place called Persia, the Persian Empire, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, a historical event that took place. Nehemiah recorded it for us. This is not fiction. He goes on to say, while I was in the citadel of Susa, let me take you back to the map real quick. Back to the map. Susa is located over here in the Persian Empire. The citadel of Susa, the word citadel, typically would have meant the most prominent city in that region. So essentially, here's Nehemiah. He's living in the capital city of Persia, the citadel. We'll find out later on that he actually works for the most powerful man in the world at the time, a guy named King Artaxerxes. And he is a special servant to the king. So here's Nehemiah living in the most powerful city in the world, working for the most powerful man in the world, telling us about what's going on in his life. Back to the story. While I was in the citadel of Susa, next verse, he goes on to say, Hanani, my brother, one of my brothers, came to me from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Picture it for a second. He's living in the citadel of Susa. Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, comes back from Jerusalem. He's part of one of the first groups of people that the Persians let go back to Israel to start reestablishing things in Jerusalem. He's back for a visit to visit his brother. What would Nehemiah typically do? How's things going in Jerusalem? How are all the people that went back on the trip that you were on? How's the remnant that are back in Israel? Listen to what they told him in response to his question. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province, back in Israel, are in great trouble and disgrace. There's no wall around Jerusalem. All the people go back. They rebuild the temple, but they are facing great opposition from all the nations around them. They're in disgrace and they're facing great trouble. In fact, his brother and his friends go on to say the wall around Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Devastating. The report is not good for Nehemiah. But remember where Nehemiah is. And let's have an honest conversation for a second. Be honest. You're in the most powerful city in the world, working for the most powerful man in the world. And you have access to everything that you need. You have access to everything. And your friends and maybe even some family members are back in Jerusalem. What would your response be? Would you give up everything in the citadel of Susa? Or would you maybe do what I think if I'm being honest I might do and say, well, we should probably pray for them. Yeah, prayer's great. <laughs> But our wall's broken down. People are attacking us every day. Yes, we want you to pray. But man, we need some practical help as well. I love, I love Nehemiah's response to what they said. Far greater than any response I would have given. When I heard this, Nehemiah said, I sat down and I wept. And for some days I mourned. And I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. 
He wasn't just like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll pray for you. Nehemiah is devastated by this news. His heart is literally broken for his friends and family that are back in Jerusalem because of the news that he just heard. And then Nehemiah does something I'm so grateful. Think about this for a second. Nearly 3,000 years ago, he journals all of this so that you and I can read it today. And he actually journals a prayer that he began to pray to God. Such a powerful prayer that Nehemiah prays. He said these words, Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commands. Essentially, Nehemiah is reminding God, God, you have made promises to us as the people of Israel. You promised us that you would keep your covenant with us. That means, God, you said that if we keep your commands and if we love you, you will give us this land, you'll allow us to prosper, and we won't be defeated and conquered by other nations. That's what you promised, God. Interestingly enough, this is the old covenant that God made with his people, the people of Israel. The old covenant said this, that if you kept God's commands and that if you loved God with all your heart, then he would love you, he would prosper you, he would protect you, he would give you the land. That was the promise, that was the covenant that God made with the people of Israel. A covenant literally means this, if you do this, then I will do this. That was the agreement that God had with Israel in the Old Testament. Good news for all of us today. Jesus came and replaced that old covenant. No longer do we get God's pleasure. No longer do we get God's favor. No longer do we get God's blessings if we keep his commands and love him. That's gone. Jesus showed up and his best friend, John, tells us about the new promise that God made, the new covenant that God made when he said these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever keeps all of his commands and loves him and does everything that he says we have to do, then God will love him. That's not what John said. He gave his one and only son, that whoever believes, that's it. Whoever puts all their hope, all their trust, all their faith in the person of Jesus, doesn't have to keep a bunch of commands, doesn't have to make sure that they love God every single moment because if they love God one moment and they don't love him the next moment, then God won't love them. John said that's all gone. It's all gone. Jesus has replaced the old with a brand new promise that if you put all your hope, all your trust, all your faith in the person of Jesus, you will have eternal life. Full stop. That's the new promise. That's the new covenant. Now back to the story. Nehemiah claiming and asking God, but this covenant, this promise that you made with us, let your ear, God, be attentive and your eyes be opened and to hear the prayer of your servant who, I'm, who is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. He's calling on God to remember the promise that he made. And then he's literally saying, God, would you listen to me? Would you please be open to listen to me, God? And then Nehemiah does something so profound. In his prayer, he does something I think all of us can learn from. 
an incredible thing that he does. He kind of changes directions and he says, I confess, God, the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. He takes responsibility not only for what he's done, but he takes responsibility for the entire nation walking away from God. And then, does, then he does something, Nehemiah does something that I would say is pretty bold. It would take a lot of courage to talk to the God of the universe this way. The sovereign God of the universe. Nehemiah says, remember, hey God, let me remind you. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses? To which, if I'm God, I'm probably going, yes, Nehemiah, I do remember, bolt of lightning. Don't remind me of things that I've said. I know what I said. But Nehemiah is pretty gutsy. He says, do you remember what you gave Moses, what the instructions were? Saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, which is what they've experienced They were unfaithful to God, so the Assyrians came, scattered in Assyria. Babylonians came, scattered in Babylon. Because of their unfaithfulness, that's what happened. But he goes on to say this. He says in the next verse, But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, if they couldn't be any further away from Jerusalem, is what Nehemiah is saying, if they're as far away from Jerusalem as they could possibly get, You promise, God, that you will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name, the city of Jerusalem. That's where God had chosen for his place to be, for his namesake to be, was in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is pleading with God. These are your promises, God. Don't you remember what you said to Moses? He goes on, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Remember when you redeemed us out of Egypt? Do you remember when you redeemed us out of Babylon, when the Persians came and you got us back to our land? And then he appeals to God one last time with one more request. He says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant, he says, Success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. What man is he talking about? He's got this special request. Hey, God, would you listen to me? And would you please give me success? Would you give me some favor with this man today? He signs off the prayer with this little statement that gives us insight into who he's talking about. He says, I was the cupbearer to the king. King Artaxerxes, most powerful man in the world, Nehemiah has access to him like nobody else would have had access to. And yet he knows if you go into the king and request something, things don't work out well for you. That's not how kings operate. Kings are the ones that make the request. You don't go into kings and request things from them. And yet he's pleading with God, God, would you give me favor? Would you listen to my prayer? Would you give me access to this guy, King Artaxerxes? The next day, he goes into the king, so broken for what's happened in Jerusalem. He's not able to hide it from King Artaxerxes. So finally, the king asks him a powerful, powerful question. What's going on? Why are you so troubled? 
Why are you so down? I can see it all over your face, Nehemiah. What? And this is the question that profoundly changed the direction of my life. The king essentially asked Nehemiah, what breaks your heart? Nehemiah, what is it that breaks your heart? Why are you so down? Nehemiah was able to explain to the king. The king gave him a leave of absence to go back to Jerusalem. The thing that gave him the resolve to accomplish the most incredible task with so much opposition in just 52 days to be able to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem was the answer to this question. What breaks your heart? Have you ever wrestled with that question? Have you ever taken the time to prayerfully consider what is it that really breaks your heart? The answer to this question, I'm convinced, can give you purpose, can give you resolve, like nothing else is possible to be able to do. Ten years ago, I finally answered this question. I was living in Austin, Texas at the time. I was the director of business development, looking after marketing and sales for a company that served school districts all across the U.S. Most weeks, I would fly out on a Sunday night, spend the week two or three days on the road working with school districts all over the country, come back on Thursday, and then spend the weekend with my family. And every Sunday morning, I would get up early in the morning because we were going to this church. It was a portable church, so we didn't have our own building. We were meeting at a school in in the city that we lived in. We had grown so rapidly that we had run out of space for the middle school ministry that we had for years six, seven, and eight kids. And they had asked me to help lead this middle school ministry. Don't ask me why. Here I am, business guy, don't really like smelly kids. And if you know anything about middle schoolers, that's the time of life. They're the smelliest, trying to figure out the whole deodorant thing. You have six, seven, and eight kids. We'd have 30 or 40 of them show up every Sunday morning. But because we were portable, we didn't fit into the school anymore. The church had decided, I don't know if it was because of the smell of the kids, but decided that we were going to meet off-site at a pool in the neighborhood where this school was. The pool had a clubhouse, and so I would pull in with a truck. I'd load up a trailer, hook it up to the truck, and I'd drive to this clubhouse, this pool, and I'd meet two or three other guys. We'd unload the trailer, and we would turn this clubhouse into this incredible spot for middle school kids to spend their Sunday mornings. One Sunday morning, I'll never forget it. I was so frustrated. After 18 months of pulling that trailer and setting up every single week for a bunch of kids that, quite honestly, I didn't really love that much. I was pretty much done. Pretty much done with volunteering, and I was getting pretty close to just being done with church because it was a lot of work. One of my closest friends, a lady named Lori, Lori McSorley, she comes up to me and she says, Jason, See that kid coming out of the car? She had no idea what was going on in my mind and my heart. See that little sixth grade boy that's coming out of the car? Six months ago, he never went to church. His family had nothing to do with church. And his parents were about to get a divorce, which was going to change the trajectory of this kid's life. Some friends of theirs who went to the church decided to invite them along because they were kind of at the end of their marriage, and they didn't know what to do. And she said to me, you know what? That kid 
loves what we do here every Sunday morning. And he tells his parents he doesn't want to miss a Sunday. And because of that, his parents have started coming to church. They've restored their marriage. And they've become followers of Jesus. And all of the sudden, in that moment, the answer to the question for me of what breaks your heart became incredibly clear. All of the sudden, God said to me, Jason, Sunday mornings are not about you. Sunday mornings are for that kid and his family who don't know me yet. And ever since that day, there's not been a day that's gone by that I haven't had purpose and resolve because I finally answered the question, what breaks your heart? And I also found the answer to another question, an even bigger question. Not what breaks your heart, but what breaks God's heart. See, I'm convinced that when you discover what your heart breaks for, and when you discover, next slide, what God's heart breaks for, then you will discover what you are here for. It's amazing. When you answer the question of what your heart breaks for and when you discover what God's heart breaks for, all of a sudden you discover what you are actually here for. In that moment, watching that little boy come into this middle school environment, I was reminded of the fact that Jesus taught this simple story about a shepherd that had a hundred sheep and one of them got away and he left the 99 Jason, Sundays are not about you. You're already in the 99. He left the 99 to go get the one. And in that moment, I discovered not only what breaks my heart, but what breaks God's heart. And that's when you discover what you're here for. The great writer, author, speaker, Rick Warren, he says why this is so important. He said these words, the greatest tragedy is not death, but a life without purpose. I know so many people that get up every day, they don't know what they're here for. They've never figured out what breaks their heart, what breaks God's heart. They've never wrestled to the ground this question that Henry Ford, he wrestled with, Carol Shelby, he wrestled with, but far greater than that, Nehemiah wrestled with it and discovered his purpose and resolve in life. So much hangs in the balance. You have no idea What or who hangs in the balance of your decision to embrace the burden God has put on your heart? Ten years ago, I had no idea who lived in Narangbar, Queensland. I had never heard of Creekside Community Church. But God in his sovereignty allowed me to embrace the thing that breaks my heart. Even though I had no idea what hung in the balance, God knew what hung in the balance. So let me ask you this question again. What breaks your heart? Do you know what breaks God's heart? What is it that breaks your heart? Say, Jason, I'm not even sure if I want to answer that question. (laughs) Because that might end up meaning I have to pack up my family and move to another country. Yeah, that might actually be part of the plan. But if you never land the plane on what breaks your heart and what breaks God's heart, you may never discover what he has you here for. And the tragedy would be not that you died, but that you lived a life without purpose. That's what the tragedy would be. Yesterday morning, and I'm finished with this story, a friend of mine this week invited me to help him out yesterday morning.
because he answered the question a couple of weeks ago, what breaks his heart? He'd been on social media and with the bushfires going on around the country, he'd gotten sick of listening to everybody blame everyone for the bushfires. One of the things I've learned in life is when you blame everybody else, you actually don't change anything. People that blame, they don't change. And so he finally said, I'm done with the blaming. I'm going to do something. So he put on a sausage sizzle. Over 2,000 people showed up at Sutton's Beach. They raised over $10,000 for the Red Cross in three-hour sausage sizzle. Unbelievable. What breaks your heart? You have no idea what God might do if you answer the question, what breaks your heart? What breaks my heart? You've already heard my story. I know what's breaking our heart as a community and as a church, and so in a couple of weeks, we'll put the uh, thing up on the screen, Evan, a couple of weeks from now on Australia Day, actually, we're going to celebrate Australia Day. How more Aussie than this than to do a sausage sizzle after church, and we're going to make it even possible for people just to drive through the car park, (laughs) grab a sausage, grab a drink. How more Aussie does it get than that? But we're going to raise some funds because that's what's breaking our heart at the moment. But don't just stop there. You answer the question. You wrestle with it. Even if you're not a Jesus follower, wrestle with the question, what breaks your heart? And you may just discover in the midst of wrestling with that question that God gives you purpose like you've never had before. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the story of Nehemiah. Thanks for movies like Ford versus Ferrari that remind us that with incredible resolve and with incredible purpose, we can see incredible things happen. So God, would you help each of us to commit to just this week? God, would you help us all to commit to just praying that simple prayer? God, what breaks my heart? And in the process, God, would you reveal to us our purpose for being here on this earth? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.